Welcome to Citizen Podcast. I'm Carrie Kelly. This conversation has been a long time coming for me, but I think for many of us who are navigating both wellness practice and social justice, because it's not enough to just do the right thing in this moment. We have to go back to the roots to heal and repair what has been broken and violated. And we have with us today a true teacher in that work. Susanna Barkataki is an Indian yoga practitioner, teacher, and now author of the recent book, Embrace Yoga's Roots, Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice. In this episode, we talk about how to personally and collectively navigate the violent history of colonization and appropriation, how to show up for each other in solidarity, and how to live into the wisdom of spiritual practice. This conversation gave me so much to reflect on and reckon with around what it means to truly embrace and embody this practice and live your life according to its values. And tune in to the end because Susanna gives us the gift of the sacred pause, a practice and gesture that can help us meet this moment and breathe into the next with grace and courage. Susanna, welcome to the podcast. So happy to be here with you. So one of my favorite questions to start with as of late, and I I learned this from an amazing facilitator named Vivette Jeffries, but I think it's related to what you and I are going to talk about on this podcast, is who are the people that you come from, or what is the medicine that you come from? Mm, Oh, yeah, we're going right there. (laughs) You know, I come from... I come from separation and connection. And I come from Assam and Bengal and people of art and music and technology and rivers and plants. And also from the British and colonization and separation and keeping it all buttoned up and like perfectly together and then also like breaking down and breaking through into what we all have in common which is a connection to the earth and to ancestors to nature so come from so many places and so many people and things. I love this question. I love it too. And I I really appreciate the way that you answered it because it speaks to a lot of what I I really wanted to to talk about with you today around that tension between Mm -hmm. the lineage of separation and the lineage of connection and and Mm -hmm. how they're like, how they're a contradiction, and yet they really both are living inside of us in different ways at the same time, all the time. Um, how do you navigate that, right? How do you navigate? And I, I'm, I feel that, like, I feel similarly in that, like, when I tell the story of my lineage, I have to, like, let myself tell the very messy and con- and, and complex and contradictory story of, of where and who I come from. Mm-hmm. And the old part of me wants to like clean it up and make it neat and shiny, you know, and the like the wise woman within me is like, no, you have to let it be what it is. And you have to actually learn how to hold space for your complexity. And so how do you, how do you work with that? 
Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I think because so much of my life, I was in the messiness of it because being born as a mixed person, as an Indian and British person in the UK, like in the heart empire in the 70s when empire was also like falling apart it was the beginning of where we are now and and really like this like there was so much backlash that it wasn't safe for me and my family to live like to be where we were my parents couldn't get jobs they were um, discriminated against and and we as children my brother and I experienced so much of the out like the outcome of this narrative of separation that I was already like steeped in not belonging and and not just from the outside, but like internally, I felt like I didn't belong. I didn't matter who I was, was invalid. I was never going to be enough. And I think these are really common feelings. Probably folks listening have felt those things. And I want to really name because lately in the self-help world, which I know, you know, in the wellness world is something where we both or in there's a lot of talk about you know it's the, it's like that pulling yourself up from your bootstraps kind of narrative but for self-help like oh it's just imposter syndrome oh work on your worthiness well f that right like what i was experiencing as a child was not imposter syndrome it was external racism that got internalized as internalized oppression that yeah of course i was so shy and felt like i had nothing to say and didn't belong but it, that wasn't an accident it was always it was set up that way. And so I think for me, a lot of the reconciliation of the two, those two things is that I came from so much um, harm and so much grief and like um, so much just like not belonging that now I'm, I'm hundred percent committed to the truth of that because the only way I got out of it was by seeing it for what it was, like seeing the reasons why I felt so shitty and then being able to say, well, yeah, Susanna, you need to own some of that and do your own work. But also this is about pointing to those structures and those systems that made you feel that way and make, you know, hundreds, millions of other people all across the world, you know, even in India where my family is, where when I visit, they say, oh, you're so beautiful, you're so light, right? Mm -hmm. It's like that colorism, that internalized, um, the thing that here in this country I was put down for, the brown skin there, because I'm a lighter shade of brown, I experienced privilege for. So all over, there, there are these complexities that when we can point to them and name them and say, oh, cousin, you know, you're gorgeous too. Like, let's unpack this, why we think I, I am more beautiful. And I need to own that privilege, but we need to acknowledge where this comes from. And, and, and then like the aha, the light bulb of, oh, it's a system. Oh, it's actually not about me um, or not just about me. And so we kind of work, I can work from the inside and the outside. And that's really brought me refuge. So it's like the, the social justice work that I've done and the wellness and yoga and healing justice work is all, you know, it, it's almost like selfish in a way. It's like, it's self-care. It's caring for the world. But as I care for the world, it's balm for my own suffering. I feel like what you're naming is a, a, a muscle and a skill that we really need um, to work, especially in wellness where there are so many um, 
loopholes, if you will, <laughs> that we tend to like live into that allow us to bypass um, mm -hmm. very real structural and systemic inequities. But it's this idea that like one's limiting beliefs um, is analogous to like systemic inequity. Um, mm -hmm. Or I'm even thinking about how um, in trauma, often we conflate, right, personal trauma with systemic trauma that's like backed by social and institutional power. And they're mm -hmm. not and I feel like we really need to bring more skill and nuance into how we talk about those things because it's not to say that it invalidates people's lived experience, but they are different, right? Like, um, and the kind of belonging and internalized racism that you're talking about isn't the same as um, an experience of, of, of not belonging that I might have had as a white person who didn't fit in for one reason or another, right? I mean, those just feel like really different stories that deserve really different um, uh, analysis. You know, it's so true because I think what people misunderstand, right, and this is why something like cultural appropriation is so important to address is, we think like, oh, it's just a bindi or it's just a, a, a cute outfit, you know, a salwar kameez or a sari that, that someone's putting on. But it's not so simple because, because of these structural issues. Myself or another Indian person may have gotten made fun of, you know, or even physically harmed or threatened for years and years. Um, I can think of like a time where I wore uh, Kami's shirt to school and the kids like made fun of me and pulled me down in the dirt and I like, got my outfit all dirty and inside go home you know and it's like ah I am home where am I supposed to go you know and um, being a child and trying to to reconcile that and understand like why am I being told I don't belong because of this thing this part of me that actually makes me feel good that was the hard part right like the i was so excited about this shirt that my aunt had given me and um and was excited and happy to wear it and then it was it became the site of my ostracization but then that very same you know later fast forward we have people five ten years later wearing those kinds of clothing white folks and getting called avant-garde or trendy or you know all of these things that it just it, it erases both the culture, the context, and also the harm. And, and so when we are able to open up to, I think, understanding and hearing each other's stories, it's like your feeling of not belonging and my feeling of not belonging actually somatically probably share a lot in common, right? And, and so there's a place in which we can have empathy and compassion for one another and even connect and bond across you know, the different positionalities and power that is really important for our collective healing. And one from white folks, from folks who haven't had that same experience of racial discrimination or erasure is like, let's bond and connect and then also acknowledge where there may be differences, right? Or where there's systemic things at play that make my experience different. And, and the same may go the other way. Like when I'm uh, connecting with trans allies and colleagues as a cisgender person, there is a way that my erasure um, has some things in common with theirs, but there's ways that it's different. And it's important for me in that moment to be like, just kind of open in this way of deep listening. I go back always, as you know, to kind of the yogic practices. So of satya, which is not just speaking truth, um, but listening really deeply, 
to someone else's experience. I love that you said that. And, and what I've learned is that, because I think often we default to sameness. So we're like, me too. I yeah. also had it, right? Whereas I, ha- I have actually found when you were talking about the bond and connection and empathy and where we get to meet one another in our shared humanity, I actually think we get there by acknowledging how our lived experiences have been different. Like to me, that is the fascia that allows us to connect more deeply, not the sameness. It's actually in the difference that we see each other more fully and we can learn to build together in relationships. So I appreciate that. I wanted to actually ask you something about that because I think both of us work in cross you know, cross-positionality relationships a lot. And there's something that's come up in my world where um, I'm like, wow, I really want, I really need the allies of this, that, or the other type to help do the work in this moment where I actually can't speak to the issue um, in the same way that an ally or an accomplice could. And so how do you, what like helps you actually build those relationships, even where, you know, being real, like I cause harm, like there are things that I do or say that, that cause harm. And I'm around folks in particular white folks who, who do also cause harm. And it's like, well, how can we still see each other in our humanity mess up, um, but continue to build together uh, in the same direction? So I'm curious your experience on that. I mean, I, I think I start from the place of location, right? What you were just talking about around like um, being transparent about my awareness that I, I like, I have a lived experience that's super proximal to mm-hmm. systems of power and privilege. Like it just feels important to like name that and own it, right? And not try and like duck it. Um, but like take responsibility for like what that means about how I show up and how just my presence sometimes causes harm. Mm. Um, and then I think it can, um, move towards like a more relational experience that, um, that, that means I have to ask myself, given my social location, what does that mean about how I show up so that I do the least amount of harm and what is my unique role and responsibility? Um, in doing the work that, that we're doing. Like, so as a white person, for example, like, I don't think it's the job of white people to lead Mm -hmm. in social justice work, right? I think it's the job of white people to follow. And when you understand your location, it helps you, um, adjust yourself, if you will, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, to not taking on like a dominator stance, but actually like correcting, right. That legacy and doing something different. Um, and I, I also will just say, like, I think it's also relationship because sometimes I just don't know, right? I just think about this in my relationship with you. Like, sometimes you just have to ask people, yeah, like, how can I show up and, and you know, um, not get in the way and, and be of service to what you're trying to do? And that feels important, too, because some, literally sometimes there's no right action and I just don't know. And if I can be in relationship with people, I can ask the, I can be humble and just ask the question. Right. I, I think about this a lot um, in yoga, particularly yoga and Ayurveda or, you know, Reiki, these different practices, even mindfulness and meditation that have come from the East, come from South Asia, come from Asia and are practiced primarily in the West and led by, you know, so these wellness practices led by white folks. And again, it's kind of like the shirt or the bindi or the sari. It's like the very thing that we got 
oppressed or suppressed or that was extracted from us and our cultures and our, our communities is now being like led by essentially the oppressors, right? And so, um, so how, how do we shift that even to the point of like, when there's a event or when there, you know, I think like concretely for me, because I also am aware as a mixed person and as a light skinned person, I may get invited to that party a little more easy than, you know, my darker skinned South Asian colleagues and allies. Um, I'm also kind of sweet and nice. And even though I come in and I'll like bring the fire on the surface, I look like a much more palatable version of the melanated, you know, uh, style of, of what we're going to bring. And so what I try to do is be like, all right, yes. Like recently I got asked for, for it to come to a particular festival. And I was like, well, here's a list of 10 other folks, you know, black and brown folks, um, make sure you're inviting, a, a not just like two, but a bunch of us. And then I would consider speaking or, or teaching. Right. So it's kind of like, putting my um putting putting my privilege to work to open doors and bring other people in and and i also feel like that's an imperfect game right there's certain things where people will see me do do something be like well you're selling out or that's not enough or you should have done more um so i'm curious about that too you know and, and how you relate to that yeah and i i would even say especially for white folks that like we have to be prepared to give things up like i haven't mm -hmm. taught yoga in a traditional studio in mm -hmm. five years yeah um because i just made a choice that that wasn't like i didn't want to be a part of um the commoditization mm -hmm. of the practice um, and I, to be perfectly honest, really struggle with teaching at all now. Like I, I'm having a really hard time finding my footing, if you will, um, and my place, right, in a practice that, that I don't come from. Yeah. It's funny because um, uh, we recently um, had a, a, a conversation with Ruby Sales, um, mm -hmm. who was saying to the white folks who was saying that, you know, um, because so many white folks sort of abandoned their culture when they assimilated into, right? And white folks being like all of the immigrants, right? All, all of the non-natives who came into um, um, the new world um, and all of its descendants, I'm one of them, right? Um, because we abandoned where we came from, right? And the culture and the medicine and the people that we came from in order to assimilate, right? To this new American way. Um, and because we don't have that root system and this sort of, I think, related to your book in some way, um, white people are really quick to steal and to mm. take what's not theirs and to feel entitled to. And, I, and this is related to what you were just saying about cultural appropriation. And so, you know, um, I struggle, right, with like, how do I be in relationship with a wisdom and a practice that is not mine, that doesn't come from my ancestors, um, but that has like impacted my life and transformed me with, with reverence and respect and skill, um, so that it's not a replication um, of the history of of colonization, of the history of taking and extracting and harming. I, I just want to like, I would love for you to talk about that actually, because I think often when we talk about 
cultural appropriation, we talk about it separate from colonization and we don't actually name the horrific legacy that it stems from and that white people continue to benefit from. Like we have inherited the, the, um, um, all that has been reaped from that harm. Um, so I would love for you to like connect the dots on that for us a little bit so that folks have a, a more clear sense of like, it's not just about like um, working with um, practices and wisdom and, um, um, and uh, symbols of someone else's culture. It's actually like living into a, a long legacy of, of like horrific um, atrocities that we need to reckon with. Yes, it really. So I was just thinking of this recent research done by uh, an economist, the last name is Pike, P-A-I-K, that detailed it's something like $30 trillion that was extracted um, by the British from India under colonization. And we're talking, you know, this like 200 years of economic rule, then after that, about 200 of, of political rule. And so when we look at today, where we are, we say, oh, the poor, that poor country, you know, with so little resources and so much poverty. Well, it's not an accident that certain countries like Britain, like Europe, like um, the United States, you know, just like there's, there's economies of extraction that, you know, for myself as a settler colonial, it's like my, even my comfort is built on the labor of the indigenous folks and um, the lives of indigenous folks and the lives of enslaved folks. And so it's the same with the extraction of spiritual knowledge, wisdom, and actually wealth from the colonies and India being one and, um, and a lot of South Asia. And so, you know, just because we benefit from something and we experience like relief or peace or uh, a deep transformation doesn't make it ours. And I think there's a way that we can relate to these spiritual technologies and feel like, oh, I had this personal revelation or this personal experience of liberation. And so now I am entitled, I am kind of empowered to go and teach it or share it or impart it. And, and that, it misses all of the, the, the greater context. One of, you know, yoga itself, it's like an organized codified system. And it's a system that's specifically organized for liberation, for personal liberation and also systemic and social. And so if we just take a part of it, we're missing, we're, we're not really doing it justice. We're missing all of the other pieces and, and therefore also watering it down for the future. But it's, it's not just that. It's not just about, oh, we're kind of messing it up. It's like this, this cultural wealth and knowledge has been extracted and also like suppressed to such an extent that even the people from within the tradition are struggling now to connect to it. And so we can't just like take what we want or take little pieces here and there and think that we're actually doing yoga. And it's really important, I think, especially for folks who are not 
kind of lineaged or culturally related. And even for folks like myself who grew up with, you know, my aunt teaching me yoga ethics and kind of as a way to be, my father teaching me yoga and meditation particularly, even we got that translated through a like a colonial lens. And I think people fail to understand that is that colonization isn't a one-time event. It doesn't just happen and then stop. There's no such thing really as post-colonial. Like we're still under the kind of the veil of colonization and it, or neo, you know, it's like a neo-colonial landscape. And so it just changed from political rule to economic rule again, back to what originally was in India. And so that's, I think, what people miss is like how to undo those systemic, um, the, the way that these systems actually cause us to stay trapped rather than free. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to do this work, especially during this pandemic, when we are being called to work harder than ever to expose the inequities of our systems and advocate for the policies that take care of everyone. We could not keep going without you. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness. And we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But we can't do it alone. And building this community on Patreon is our way of sustaining this work in relationship and in accountability with you. By joining our community for as little as $2 a month, you help us create content and resources that matter to this moment. And you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live community meetups, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. Please join us at patreon.com slash citizen well. What do you say um, to people who ask you, like, how should I be in relationship to these practices and to this wisdom? Like, what does that look like for people that not only don't come from them, but that are actually a part of the lineage that took it in the first place? Right. Yeah. And you know, I think part of answering that question is I am both as well, right? Like I'm part colonizer, part colonized. And, um, and for me, too, it's like always one, learning the full expanse of what yoga is and what it can be, being humble about that and and staying in relationship to a particular teacher, I would say go to the source too, like learn from Indian teachers, learn from South Asian teachers, but doesn't mean all South Asian teachers are, are great, you know, um, but, but question where the knowledge is coming from. Is it a colonial mindset or is it kind of an intrinsic mindset? And the reason that's important is a lot of the recent scholars who are Western scholars, so white men are, <laughs> they're taking the research of their Desi colleagues or Indian colleagues in diaspora, and then they're claiming it as their own. 
And they're also using it in ways that invalidate the internal, like a concrete example is saying that the, the written language of the Indus Valley civilization isn't a language and putting a bounty saying it's not a language, first of all, um, and we are so convinced that it's not a language we're offering like $5,000 if anyone can translate it. Like it's so, um, so disrespectful. Like just because you can't translate, it doesn't mean it's not a language, right? And, and saying, and we have no proof that yoga uh, dates any prior to the time of the Buddha. And, and that is a way of looking at a culture and a, and a practice and a civilization from the outside because internally and what my teacher like Shankarji has told me as well as villagers I've talked to in the region where, you know, in the Indus Valley region um, now is yoga was, was being practiced thousands of years before that. It's just an oral tradition and it's passed down from teacher to student, teacher to student orally. So no, we don't have proof we can point to, but we have a homa, we have fire that has been burning for 5,000 years with mantra being chanted over it. The same mantra that were chanted 5,000 years ago by, um, by priests or by, by people who are transmitting that knowledge still to this day. And so for a researcher to bring their perspective, they're also bringing um, their limitations, right? They're that colonial lens. So one is look at the source and, and question those sources, learn um, always, and then I think develop a relationship from the inside out, a relationship where, you know, say if one's learning um, pranayama, like some of the, the other practices of yoga, drishti, um, mantra, mudra, um, that help bring us to the aim of personal or social liberation, to practice first and to maybe pause on, on teaching or sharing as we develop that personal relationship and to kind of always be questioning why, for what am I teaching? Like, what is this purpose for? And then also being in relationship with other folks um, in like contemporarily, right? So just again, a concrete example for myself teaching in the West, I do teach yoga teacher trainings. I don't teach alone. So it's not like students come just to me. They come to a teaching staff of 16 other people, um, like six, eight, 10 other South Asian folks, four, five, six black folks, you know, brown folks, like people who will bring a different perspective. And that that's important too for me as a practitioner and as a teacher is to be in relationship with others who are like me and unlike me, um, back to what we were first talking about. So I think being in, in relationship as opposed to relating as a as an individualized project. Um, so it's like connect, learn, kind of be humble, and then collaborate. And the be humble part, is that related to what you're saying about like being curious about the mindset that you're coming from, right? Like, how am I bringing a colonizer? I feel like we have to check ourselves too. Like, how am I bringing a colonizer mindset to this? Yes, it's kind of doing that work of decolonization, which decolonization concretely, you know, in the United States is about rematriating, re-giving the sovereignty of the land back to folks here. That's something that I, as again, as a colonial, need to work on and need to be aware of and need to be in relationship to. 
And the same within a, an indigenous wisdom tradition, any indigenous wisdom tradition, you know, if I was practicing Ifa, it would be returning the sovereignty back to African folks, you know, black folks whose lineage it's from. In yoga, returning the sovereignty and the leadership to the folks from whom it was stolen, which doesn't mean that someone doesn't have value or is something to share, but it does mean they need to be in relationship and, and literally um, practicing reparations, right? By reparations, I mean like materially giving back, um, donating, and also kind of what you said about, I don't remember exactly how you said it, like not necessarily leading, like giving space to, um, and I think about this a lot, right? We saw this with on Instagram with the difference between like sharing the mic and like giving up one's platform. And, and you know, and, and I think we're in that moment with COVID and with everything that's happening to um, a lot of us, like the Daisies and South Asians I'm around are like, we don't need these structures. Like the, the studio structures, you know, goodness bless the, the small and amazing studios, and I wish they were still here, but the big, like, white centering corporate ones, it's like, let them end, let that, let that era end. We don't need them anymore. We don't need their validation. We never did, but now we can speak up and take our, our place and alongside other folks of color. And, and kind of, there's a, there's a moment of imagination and of possibility and of creativity that I'm hopeful um, will get us through this time that I'm hopeful we can bring into the wellness world. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like it, it brings us back to the conversation that we began with about like being indoctrinated in both separation and interconnection, because in some ways we're steeped in this culture, whether we like it or not. Right. So like, what does it look like to be in the system disrupting and challenging um, and withdrawing consent? while to your point simultaneously like imagining beyond the system and i also would say like who gets to mm -hmm. imagine beyond right like i i actually think that's another place where we can like um um adjust ourselves based on our location like i don't know that i want white people imagining the future of wellness right mm -hmm. like i i don't know that 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 doesn't feel um very expansive to me, given like what white people have done to, to wellness and to all of the modalities that make up wellness in the taking and the extracting and the picking pieces apart as you were naming. Mm -hmm. um, but, and to me, this goes back to like right role. Like if, if you're a white person or if you're a person with um, a particular uh, proximity, right, to power and privilege, um, what is your right role in like challenging and disrupting those systems and what is your right role in imagining what's next for wellness and for practice and i actually don't think that that's the same thing i, I don't think it's like we're all in it together and we're going to all do the same things together like that doesn't feel very skilled to me mm -hmm. yeah i love that that question what is your right role and you know i think there's a way that we can work <laughs> So, so often I've worked in collectives that are cross-racial, that are working on recovery and healing and addressing these bigger systems. And we bring in art and we bring in music and we bring in like creative um, expression. But I'm thinking about the times that it's been most effective. The leadership is always, we always orient it towards the most marginalized, 
right? So it's like, say I'm in a show that's around, um, I don't know, like indigenous sovereignty, I'm taking leadership from, I'm taking guidance from the folks who that most impacts. And so I can still show up, I can still contribute, I can sew the costumes, I can create, you know, the scenery, I can even maybe be in a background dance number, right, in this show. But I'm not the star of that show, and I'm also not the director. And I think that's really an important um, framing. I'm looking back, I've never actually seen it this way, but because we literally did this, right? Like with, with my friends when we were younger, we were in our 20s and, and so passionate about social justice, we would make these like elaborate events. But the ones that I led in were the run, ones around, you know, indigenous healing practices, yoga, meditation, right? But most of them I didn't lead because it was they weren't my issues to lead on. Um, so there's a, there's a a metaphor there, and I think a way too that we can work on these things, like strategically. And I know you think about this too. I'm curious your thoughts on this. Where it's like sometimes I collaborate with the powers that be in order to change them. Like I work within the system. Sometimes I'm like ad- agitating from the outside, and then sometimes I'm creating new systems, and I'm doing it all at the same time. And so there's a complexity to that. Um, in in the roles that we play. And, and a lot of the change makers that I really admire, like Patrice Colors, who's one of my colleagues and friends, does that so skillfully. And the, the thing when we do that is there are going to be haters. Right? There's always going to be people look and say, wait, when you made that move on the inside, you should have been agitating from the outside. But I think about, and I can't, folks won't, won't see this, but I want to like hold up a pen. So if you can imagine like a line um, or a pen, and to create systemic change, like to tip, you know, if you have the pen balancing on a on um, a point or on your finger, like to tip the the fulcrum, you sometimes have to move or push on a couple different areas at the same time. And so, and that strategy isn't always going to be perfect. And and yet, I I feel like I have to do something and and move, try to move the issues in the best way that I know how. Mm, I love, first of all, I just want to say, I love that we're getting into strategy. (laughs) This gets me so excited. Um, And yes, I I feel, I feel the same way. And I also feel like it challenges our ideas of like binary and that there's one Mm -hmm. right way. And, um, and one of the things we've been talking about lately is also that like organizing is dynamic. Like not only is there not one right way, but it's like constantly moving and evolving. And we, um, you know, one of the things we were reflecting on over the last couple of days is if you're doing the same thing over and over and over again, you're probably not doing the right thing. Mm. Um, so like each moment demands mm. a different response. And we have to be like really critical about like, what does this moment require from us? And, and to your point, is it like working from within the system? Is it like raging from outside of the system? Is it like leaving the system and imagining and designing something completely different? And I and I think that we have to like have a capacity that allow and a dexterousness. I don't even know what's the word dexterousness, but you know what I mean. Dexterity that allows yeah. us to like pivot constantly and right and just be curious about like what is needed right now. Um, right. And then there's like the the complexity of like and what is my place in what's needed right now and what does that mean about like my role in bringing that forth. And to me, like being in a conversation like that, that's like super alive 
and that's demanding like critical thinking and complexity at all times is sort of the medicine we need to meet this moment because look, we just don't know. We don't. We don't know like what's next. Like I don't know a time where things have felt more uncertain and unclear. And so all we have is like being like radically present Mm. to what is and being prepared, right, to like move and pivot and adapt and morph, right, and shift. And it's so funny because I just, that just brings me right back to the practice of like how that is what the practice teaches us. It really does. And I I reflect on that. So because while you were talking, I was thinking this is taking me back into yoga, right, which is a practice of sovereignty, of Swaraj, the nonviolent movement that unseated the British from colonial rule of India was a movement of internal self-rule that had to happen at the same time as India experiencing its own political self-rule. And so Swaraj, like the practice of yoga really is designed for sovereignty. And, And literally like through the meditation, through the movement, to in small and large ways, being not so much at the whim or like the beck and call of our experiences, but at choice in relationship to them and at power in relationship to them. And then also literally in the sutras is the charge to practice yoga as a process of disrupting harm, of ahimsa, of harm interruption or harm disruption, of care, not just personal care, but social care, care for others. And so it's kind of got that whole system within it um, that I have to turn to because it's like, you're so right. I mean, it's such an overwhelming time, I think, for so many of us personally, and then collectively and looking at these big forces. And in those moments, I just have to turn back into the practice and then ask myself, well, what is the right next step from that more clear place? It's funny too, because, you know, um, I feel like there's like a dominant wellness narrative of like, yoga is going to save us that often I like do like an eye roll around because I know like the kind of yoga they're talking about. But when I think about the kind of yoga we're talking about here, yoga as decolonizing the mind, right? Yoga as dismantling our embodied conditioning, Mm -hmm. Um, yoga as um, being able to work with uncertainty, with skill, right? Um, Yoga as remembering our interdependence and that we are not separate from one another and from the, like when I think about that kind of yoga, I'm like, oh, actually, if we return to that place, like we we might be okay. (laughs) Like this might actually work. Yeah, and I've seen models of it, right? I've seen it work like in villages in Bihar where, where, there are students and, and children that are so that have so few resources that they can't even afford government schools, where the teachings and the practice of yoga are brought into the villages, into the communities. Because the thing is, when you have that little, there's also very little hope, right? So there's also very little motivation. But then the practice comes and people are not from the outside, like, here's a practice that you need to do, but it's just like in relationship, in conversation. And then there's a kind of self-empowerment and a movement towards change and where whole whole villages um, come into more, more self-determination. And I've seen it in Sri Lanka. I've seen, you know, so I've seen these things happen over and over and over again over the last 
20 years um, in small increments, right? Like you were talking a couple hundred people, not like thousands, millions of people. I've seen that yet. Other than, uh, yeah, I haven't seen it on a, on a large scale, but I, because I know and I have complete faith that it works on a small scale and I've felt it in my own life, it's that that makes me hopeful that it can work as a, as a social change strategy and that I come back to and I'm committed to and what I want to dedicate my whole life to, right? Well, and I do think we're also seeing it here in the States in response to the many pandemics, right, that, that we're facing. We saw it in like the mutual aid networks that mm-hmm. like popped up in response to, to the many people and, and communities who were particularly vulnerable, vulnerable to the COVID virus. We've seen it in the immigrant community and the way in which they've organized right outside of the state in response mm-hmm. to mass deportations and being excluded from um, um, you know, systemic care. Um, we've seen it in, um, um, in black communities and the ways in which they have done so much healing around um, police brutality against black and brown people, right? We've do, I do think there are really beautiful examples of, um, of like organized care that, mm-hmm. that kind of come from that like interdependent knowing um, that, that are happening in real time that are some of the best examples of like, where we want to go Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a community and as a country. And they're almost always coming from the margins. Yeah. Right. Um, And that's why I I keep thinking like, that's where the imagination and the innovation lies. Mm. It's not with people who have been um, protected by or taken care of by dominant systems. Right. It's been, that to me is too easy. It's actually like, it's, it's all of the innovation, creativity, imagination, um, beauty is actually, I see emerging, emerging from the margins. And that's why like folks in the center actually need to like step away, Mm. um, and, and, and look to the margins and follow folks who are leading from that perspective. Cause that I think offers us the greatest, um, potential for what's possible. Right. Right. And there's so many ways to do that and so much support for doing that. I think we're, I think about like when we're living our truth, you know, and our kind of true purpose, like not, not the commodified version of like, oh, live your purpose, but like that deeper, well, why am I here? What is this really about? And I think when we can get below the the commodification and the commercialization of that, then it's like, oh, right, I'm here for this. And so that's a question that I have for everyone listening is like, how can you go deeper in that inquiry into, into what you're sharing right now, Carrie? Is like, what are the ways that I can get outside my own kind of ego? Because really it's about ego. Um, and self, like a, a feeling of self-preservation or self-celebration that makes it so we, we say, no, I don't want to look at, at these other ways of doing things or my way is fine. It's working. It's enough. But actually it's like, let's break that down a little bit. And, and what's deeper, what's below that, what's beneath that, what more is there possible? Um, what perspective can I expand into? Well, and I really appreciate that you brought individualism 
in, into this, right? Because that too is in collusion with um, colonial mindsets. That too is in collusion, right? With white supremacy and capitalism and this idea that like um, we are separate and we're all on our own, right? And so therefore we need to like be totally invested in the self, the preservation of the ego Mm-hmm. And the amplification of like the self, and by self I mean like the small self, and mm-hmm. um, and and the way in which that has infiltrated yoga and the community of wellness, um, mm-hmm. that it's become so eye focused. I'm even just as, while you were talking about purpose, I'm thinking even that how that has been lost, right, mm-hmm. in an individual framework of like you get to be like an eye purpose that's that disregards everyone else. Yeah. Right. It just becomes another like domination strategy of like, how do I get to the top and be the only one and be the best? Um, So anyway, so I'm just thinking about that, too. And it's just making me think about how I mean, that's just so rampant in wellness. But we're also seeing a really harmful manifestation of that right now um, in the way in which folks are responding to the the very like interconnected truth that COVID is teaching us, right? That we are as vulnerable as the most vulnerable and yet hyper-individualism is inspiring people um, to um, be fiercely anti-mask, mm. right? To, to give into conspiracies that allow them to like self-preserve and self-protect mm-hmm. um, and that equate freedom. Yeah right? To like self um, everything. Um, so anyway, so I'm, a, I'm grateful that you named that because that feels like a really toxic manifestation that isn't in fact what yoga is about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because there's an overlay, you know, when you take the anti-mask movement and, and folks who've been open to different conspiracy theories to explain and kind of justify what's going on between a lot of privilege in general, a lot of privilege and the ability to make that move to fantasy or, or imagination or, you know, an individual focused answer to these solutions. And, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic, I remember like having conversations with colleagues, black and brown colleagues who were like, people are like, are you still teaching? Are you going to teach outside? And we were like, no, there's no way. Because even though we might be okay, we could be endangering someone else and we just don't have enough information. And that's not a choice as a leader that we think we should, we should be making. And so there's this different, you know, and, and also just to be real, like I'm in a lot of conversations with folks all the time, um, who are losing everything, right? Who've lost homes, who've lost jobs, who've lost their income. Um, I lost so much, probably you did too, with being like we travel and teach. And the conversations that I'm in in certain circles are, are all about like, how can we collaborate? How can we uplift? And then in other circles, again, kind of overlaid with privilege are much more focused on like, what am I gonna do? They're not so collaborative. And so just seeing that, play out and then asking myself if I have a moment of contraction of like, but I want that, I want that for me and I don't want to share it. Um, what I try to do is relate to it on an energetic level of, okay, what do you do when there's contraction? Well, it's a natural state to contract and expand. So to expand back out and then share like that colleague's work or that other thing. So just continually being in a process of that, which I think is 
a practice. It's a work. It's not so easy. And if we um, if we don't do that kind of work, we can we can be a little more vulnerable to these narratives of um, of glorification of the self only. And we're just seeing how that it just doesn't work. You know, it's not. <laughs> so I hope I hope Look where folks, it's gotten us. Yeah, I hope folks are also it's like just because we have an impulse to individualism doesn't make us bad, right? Like normalizing to that binary, it's not like they're bad and we're good. No, it's just like that way it's not working. So even if I have that impulse, like taking a moment, I see you, little Suzanne, that feels threatened. Okay, you know, how can how can we move through this? Like, what do you need? Do you need to breathe? Do you need to go on a run? Do you need to call a friend? Like, what's going to move you into um, collaboration and to not not being focused on this limited sense of yourself. And so it's not automatic all the time. Sometimes it is, but it's a practice I'm committed to. And that whole, I think yoga in this expanded way, the full version of the practice supports that and that we can support one another with that as well. I feel like this is such a good segue to your book, hmm. um, which is called em- Embrace Yoga's Roots. Um, and is, is really about, um, correct me if I'm wrong, returning to the wisdom um, and, and, and the practice, right, that yoga comes from. It's, like a rem- it's almost like a remembering. That's how I think about your book. And that's how I think about your work, by the way, is like whenever I'm around you and I'm learning from you, um, I'm just in a constant practice of like remembering like, oh, yeah, that's the truth. That's who I am. <laughs> that's how we be. <laughs> like, I'm always like, oh, yeah, there it is. That's home. And you you actually really represent that for me mm. um, and how I experience you. I'm always almost like returning mm. in, in some way to, to myself. Um, mm. But this book is really about like returning to the roots, right, to the truth, um, to the origins. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. Oh, thank you for asking. It came from that separation, right? Like, wow, everything that I know yoga to be, what I've been taught by my family, you know, the the mindfulness practices, the meditation practices, that's not what I'm seeing. So what is this disconnect? How how have we gotten from what yoga is and can be to what it is in, in the yoga industry and, and in the West? And so sharing kind of that journey of connecting the dots and what went wrong, what's missing. And so it goes through a section on separation and like what has caused this separation, which I think we can all relate to. It's not just for folks from within the tradition. It's like we might have experienced a taste of the liberation and the freedom and the joy that yoga offers, but be like, "Mm, something's off or there's something more here that I'm not getting. And then reflection and what is my role? What is my part? How do I, how am I showing up in this? Which is that back to positionality and then reconnection through action. So moving into like what we can do. And then finally liberation, which expands as and is that piece on remembering here's all and all, you know, a taste like in one book, you can't have all of what yoga is, but here's some concrete practices of what yoga can be concretely you know share one example because folks can get a free chapter on it is we talk a lot about trauma-informed yoga and trauma-informed yoga is so useful 
as a field. And I'm really grateful to the influence of, you know, neurology and, and um, neuroscience and all the modern findings. But it's not like it wasn't there in early yoga practices and early yogic texts. And so looking at even something as simple as the sound om, ah, ooh, mm, and ah being a regulator for the, the lower body, ooh, for the center, the core, mm, for the mouth, the jaw, the head, the brain, right? We're, through sound and through mantra, there was always an intention of re-regulation for the nervous. I mean, they might have not used the word nervous system, but for they would call it the nadis for the channels, uh, for the the channels in the body. And so that chapter takes trauma informed yoga in particular and says, well, here's some specific tools from within the tradition that can support and nourish us in our managing stress, in our moving forward in these ways that are you know, quote unquote, trauma informed, but, or, and we also need to acknowledge these roots and not strip the practice of its, um, of its original meaning and depth. Yeah. I love it. And it's so funny, just hearing you talk about it makes me think that you don't need to be a yogi. You don't need to be a person who practices yoga to understand how valuable this book is for this moment, no. both in helping us understand like where we come from, right? And where this wisdom come from, comes from, but also in just how accessible these tools are in mm. helping us meet this like current moment. Mm. Um, and so my last question for you is given the times that we are in, Mm. which I don't even feel like I need to put a timestamp on this episode. Like I think we are going to be in uncertain times for really, we have a lot of work to do to undo our past and to, to vision forward something different. But what's some, um, what do you think is like one tool or practice or nugget of wisdom from yoga that, that you think is particularly helpful to meet this moment? I know it's hard because I'm asking you to pick one and there's like 25. <laughs> yeah, I'm pausing to just like, hmm. I'm going to go with, because it's what I'm needing right now, is that the sacred pause and the pause that happens and I'll just invite people listening to, to do this with me if you'd like. You don't have to. But to see if you can apply your attention along the length of your next inhale. And notice at the top of the inhale that space before turns and apply your attention on the length of the exhale. And there's a space and it may be on your own time, may not be with my guidance, but back to the inhale. Pause. And then exhale. Notice the pause. And I feel my shoulders dropping. I feel my belly softening, my jaw softening in that pause. And so coming back to the breath like that, um, for me, as a practice of reclaiming and reconnecting with my true home. 
And when I can be there with that home within, I don't need to like do a whole lot. Sometimes like I'm, I'm just more aligned with what that next right step might be. So that, that's the practice. Mm, I'm going to throw it I don't have like that and ahimsa that and wait, let me work one more thing in there. But thank you. Thank you. And be nonviolent. <laughs> I mean, truly like, like being nonviolence at, in, at, with every breath I feel like is essential, but that, that is such a gift. And I also think it, it helps us to, to meet the moment and, and do the strategic work that you were naming earlier around like when we take that sacred pause, we can see more clearly, we can calibrate, we can be critical with ourselves and what we're coming from. And, and hopefully we can engage with more skill um, and with one another. Yes. Yeah. It's like in, in that spaciousness because truly what yoga is for me, these practices are for me, is the creation of space. And so it's in that space that I then can, I have more capacity yes. to space for others and, um, and to create the space for imagination and for change. Well, I, I just want to say I'm so grateful, not just for this conversation and not just for your book, but just for the role that you've played in the wellness community and allowing us to create more space and build more capacity to, to live into the practice more fully. Like you really have um, shifted the culture. Mm. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you have done to teach me and to help me remember. Um, and, uh, and I'm excited for people to experience your book and to, and to remember um, the roots of this practice and what it can do for us right now. Yeah, it's a movement. We're creating this, we're co-creating this movement. And I'm so grateful for everyone, for listening, for you, and for all of what we're, what we're creating together. Thank you, Susanna. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to reconnect to your roots and live into your values. You can buy Embrace Yoga's Roots at SusannaBarkataki.com and follow her on Instagram at SusannaBarkataki. Special thanks to DJ Drez and the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for communities who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out. I go higher and feel the music soothe, breath of fresh air, channeling the most hot. This is good times.